King, and in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is uh, my privilege to introduce to you this hour, uh, John Moore. Um, John and Carla are uh, very, very important to what we do here at Bear Valley. I was thinking about you know, the opportunity to introduce those who've come in from the outside, and that's pretty cool. Um, but to introduce fellow staff member and friend is probably even cooler than that. Um, we've tried to, to forge a family atmosphere and uh, to build a camaraderie and a connection, not just as fellow teachers, but as friends and brethren. And John is uh, a great facilitator of that, that discussion and that idea. Um, he and Carla do so much, uh, not just among the staff, but to facilitate that among the students as well. And uh, my life has been enriched. I've made this comment a number of times. Um, John and I lived and, and preached with just in a few miles of each other for a number of years in Texas and we got together and hung out and did things but it wasn't until we both got here that uh, that our love began to grow for one another and our friendship began to be strengthened and I know that I'm a better person because of him and I know that those of you who have traveled to the Bible lands with them or sat at his feet in lectures or watched his videos in World Video Bible School that you've been enriched by the things that he's done and so I know that's why you're here today and I'm going to ask him if he will to come and preach to us. Preach the word. Thank you Wayne. Well, if you're like me, sometimes finding the right motivation to do the things we need to do can be a little bit challenging. And sadly, when it comes to worship, maybe we find the motivation a little bit lacking from time to time. And that's really sad because there's so much in way of motivating us to be here every Sunday or when we gather together with other people to to truly worship God. And in the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about some motivating factors, I think, that are going to help us to really get excited about coming to worship. In fact, we're going to be studying from the Psalms of Ascent, and if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll do that you'll turn over to these Psalms. We're going to be focusing on really Psalm 128 down to about 133, so we'll be looking quickly at seven different Psalms. I know that Wayne Berger touched on the other Psalms relative to what we call the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, yesterday. I didn't get to hear that, but I have read some of his material before and know that it was excellent and appreciated his approach. But when we talk about the meaning of ascent and these being referred to as Psalms of Ascent, what on earth are we talking about? Well, there are differing ideas about it. Some say that it was uh, called this or is called this because of a musical arrangement with sort of ascending notes that maybe each psalm started out a little bit higher uh, in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, in terms of its tone. Some say based on the literary arrangements with verbal step connections uh, as a way of sort of memorizing uh, what were in these 15 so-called Psalms of Ascent. And uh, others suggest that uh, it has something to do with the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And if you know something about the topography, the geography of Jerusalem itself, you'll know that Jerusalem is and pictured here in this illustration of the ancient city of David with the Solomonic temple up to the north before the city had expanded uh, westward up to what we call today Mount Zion but which is what we might call the western hill but at any rate uh, that 
first city about 10 to 12 acres in size where the city of David was located down on the spur of Ophel. Um, was a relatively small city but yet it was up on a hill surrounded by valleys and so that particular city is quite literally located in a hill country region somewhere around 24 2500 uh, feet above sea level to the south it gets a little bit higher to the north uh, especially as you would make your way up to Mount Hermon uh, around 9500 feet above sea level and then the coast on the western side so no matter what direction you came from especially if you came from down near Jericho some 1400 feet below sea level in about a 10 to 12 mile little trek there you're going to feel that real sense of going up, up, up to Jerusalem. And uh, we've all been on a bus and made that with a, a group of people uh, on a large 50-seater bus, and it's just chugging along, you know, trying to get up that steep descent uh, in that short uh, area. So you really do feel like, just about no matter where you come from, that you're going up to Jerusalem. So some people really believe that that's what these psalms were sort of about, people singing, uh, having these thoughts in mind as they came from various locations all over the Bible lands, making their way up to Jerusalem. Here's a good illustration that shows you indeed uh, what I'm talking about, that Jerusalem was in the hill country, and then if you uh, even made your way to Jerusalem itself, this is a, a topo of the area showing those valleys around it, the Kidron Valley and the Central Valley surrounding the city of David and, and Mount Zion. And then just another uh, depiction of this uh, that might uh, really sharpen in and uh, help you to see some of those valleys and hills. City of David here and then the temple would have been located up here. So even if it was that you were not uh, but making reference to the general location, even as you approached the temple, uh, there was still that sense of ascent going up toward Jerusalem. And then here uh, uh, is another one that will give you a feel for that and a picture of down in the Kidron Valley. This is not too far from uh, the Gihon Spring, and you uh, can look up to what many people suggest is where the pinnacle of the temple was located. Uh, long story there about that wall. We don't have time to go into that. But uh, imagine you will, especially during the second temple period, when uh, um, uh, Herod had a, a large uh, royal stoa built on top of that, and then it going up much higher. So that, that real sense, you know, you've got that uh, definite sense of having to go up to the temple. And here's a better one down from the Kidron Valley looking up uh, on the southern end of the Temple Mount uh, today. But I think that probably, I, I like this one the best, maybe out of all of them, as to songs that were sung uh, not just on your way in your pilgrimages up to the wonderful city where God's presence could be found, but songs that were perhaps uh, sung on the steps uh, of the temple uh, themselves. Now, we have some idea about what the temple looked like based on archaeology and, and the Mishnah and, of course, the Bible and Josephus. And putting all of that together, we, uh, we realize that there were indeed uh, steps 
on the southern end, and two different sets of them, one going up into the double gate, the other into the triple gate, and uh, some said that there are 15 steps here, but I've counted them and they're not, uh, even 15 landings they're not, it's close, but, and we're not even sure how much maybe really further it might have went down south, but there were steps uh, there, and even uh, today, as we'll show you here in just a moment, some people may even gather uh, from time to time on those steps and sing these songs. We do know from the Mishnah that there were uh, some, and the Mishnah or the, is the uh, recording of the oral law about the second century A.D., near the end of the second century A.D., when, when uh, the oral interpretation uh, of the Torah, of the Tanakh, was finally codified and, uh, and tells us a little bit about some of the things that went on at the temple. And here in the court of the women, where you would then enter into the court of Israel, this short little area before you got into the, where the altar, of, uh, the altar of sacrifice was, uh, and then beyond that, of course, the Holy of Holies, but some 15 steps here, as we're told. And uh, the, the Mishnah tells us that the priest would come out in the mornings, and they would sing songs, uh, and some of the songs they sang were these that we're going to be studying today and uh, analyzing uh, uh, in just a moment. So whether it was these southern steps here where, as I mentioned, people even today grab their, their uh, books, their Bibles, and they go up to this broad landing here. You can see a smaller step and then a broad landing and a smaller step and it alternates all the way up there to sort of produce uh, uh, a, um, a means of approaching God in a very reverential way. And uh, I'll mention that in just a moment in one of these psalms, but there are some who are even doing that today. Uh, I like to think of that these were probably sung at the 15 steps, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that people began to associate these psalms with being in God's dwelling place, being at God's temple. And today, there are Jews that gather around the western wall. And this picture has been somewhat uh, edited just a little bit to expand it some. And uh, things are a little, little different. The Dome of the Rock should be over here. But nevertheless, uh, it is a, a fairly decent, accurate picture of these uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews, these Hasidic Jews that have gathered at the western wall. And they're singing, and they're going around in circles. And, and just about every time that uh, we've been to Israel, We've noticed, uh, especially on certain days, uh, bar mitzvahs that are occurring, our families gathering uh, at various locations, and they're singing, and maybe they're... Uh, one day I was uh, underneath uh, Wilson's Arch, what's called Wilson's Arch, and back in here where there's a synagogue uh, place, there were a bunch of kids, uh, uh, Orthodox children, and they were being taught songs of celebration and uh, songs uh, about God. So... When I, when I see that and I think about, okay, well, we, we don't go to a literal temple in Jerusalem to worship today, but we do go to God's temple, the church, Amen. the people of God, to praise God, and we come together uh, as His holy habitation. There ought to be a lot of enthusiasm and excitement as we do that. Now, these Jews... 2,000 years ago and during the Second Temple period and then of course back even further to the Solomonic period when these psalms were probably composed, there was a reason 
that they expressed what they expressed and the desire that came from wanting to go there. And these Psalms really capture a little bit of that. So let's, uh, let's talk about what I've called seven reasons to praise God. Seven reasons to praise God. So we want to make this as practical as possible as we analyze these, the last half of these Psalms of Ascent. And, uh, and go one by one. I've tried to at least maybe capture the essence of what each psalm is about so that we can then think about it and internalize it to help us as we go to God's holy temple today, the church, God's people to worship Him. So I'm just going to quickly list all of these because I know I'm not going to have time to go into any of them in detail. But I'm going to list them all and then go back and we'll see what what, uh, time permits to get into some of the psalms uh, and and analyze them psalm by psalm. But uh, as as I approach these, I began to realize well, Psalm 128 is about God. Well, let me back up first and, whoops, going the wrong way. Let me just mention this, that as I began to look at these Psalms, uh, I asked myself, well, is there some connective tissue here that would bring all of these together to, to help us today? And I was looking for key words and repeated words, and, and there are many different ones depending upon the Psalm that you're studying. But one constant theme definitely seemed to stand out a lot to me, and that was God. 28 times, 28 times, the name for God is used. The, the Tetragrammaton, the four uh, Hebrew letters that are used in reference to God's name, or we might say Yahweh today, uh, are used in these seven Psalms. 28 times, and then 35 pronouns in reference to Him. So there's this definite theocentric emphasis in these psalms, which I'm not surprised, right? We think about what is the object of our coming together, what's it all about, just like Dan was saying today. It is about God. It's not about us. It's about God. And what these psalms teach us as they came to Jerusalem, or as they came up the steps, or as they the priests sung on those 15 steps, was that being at the temple was to be about God. Now, as a little side note, we do know that sometimes the Jews had a little bit of trouble with this, right? Jeremiah had to correct some of their positions about their saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They, they took so much stock in the fact that it had been there, that it was such a grand place that, uh, you know, that, uh, that demonstrated that God's favor would always remain with his people. And they became enamored with the buildings uh, of the temple, just like the apostles when they showed, uh, were walking with Jesus during that last week of the so-called Passion Week, and and the Bible says that they were showing him the buildings of the temple. What wonderful buildings! And truly, the Herodian complex was grand. It was enormous. Some 26 NFL-sized football fields could be put upon that platform, and it was a uh, made in Greek Roman-style architecture that just was one of the real wonders of the world. But sometimes people became more enamored with that than why they were there and what all of what was being uh, or what had been crafted and designed there, what it was to point people to when they came. Sort of reminds me today, don't we? Sometimes if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the physical. We can get so focused on what things look like and the grandiose of our buildings and uh, you know uh, whether or not we're, we're really caught up in terms of the modern architecture and style of 
our building, which I, th I think we ought to make things look good, don't get me wrong, but when that becomes our focus, we really have naturally have lost the very essence of what we are called to do each first day of the week when we come to worship God. So as we go through these, I just couldn't help but notice that God was at the center of this, that what the psalmist is telling us in Psalm 128 is that God blesses, that God avenges, that God forgives, that God comforts, that God remembers, that God unifies, and that God uh, is sovereign. And I might want to change that one up just a little bit. You know, I struggle with trying to find some of the right words as, as we analyze these. But let's open up our Bible now and let's go back and sort of look at just a few key words and some thoughts associated with each of these that hopefully might encourage us. And, and as we do, I like to put myself back into the, the context of Jews during this first temple period going up to the temple. Who were they? Okay? Uh, and, and what might they have been thinking as they approached God's holy hill? Well, there's a whole class of people in Psalm 128 that had to be thinking about, I am here because of the wonderful blessings of God. I want to come and thank God for what He's done for me. And he has truly blessed me, and he blessed these people, Israel. So take a look at verse number 1. We find a word blessed there, and in verse number 4, the word in English blessed. But they're actually two different Hebrew words. And there may be some lap over in terms of, of meaning for some of those words. Just, but also, there, I think there's a little a shade or a nuance of difference between them. One seems to focus on maybe a little bit more of the physical blessings that we might receive. And the other seems to focus on the spiritual blessings. Now, I know that we are tempted when it comes to serving God to think, when I'm blessed, I see it only in terms of, okay, I've got food on the table, I've got a car to drive, right? Uh, my health is good. And certainly those things may, you know, come along with a blessed life. But especially in the New Testament, a blessed life really rarely has anything to do with that, right? Because there are so many people that were sick and struggling and had problems. But the blessed life had more to do with this intrinsic joy and peace that could endure suffering and hardship and that gave us hope and optimism in the face of all kinds of difficulties and problems. Now, let's take a look at that then in regard to these people some uh, 25, 2600 years ago, let's say. So, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord? Notice, who walks in his ways. We'll come back to that in just a moment. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you shall be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. So, 
imagine Israel, which at that time was largely an agricultural society, right? I mean, people in the city, I understand Jerusalem, uh, many of them uh, had different jobs and, and uh, that may not have included farming. But the large portion of Israeli citizens at this time, or the people of Israel and Judah, uh, had to do with farming. And so for the writer to say, look, God has blessed you. He's given you what you needed. It's sort of like saying to them, you've got the money in the bank that you need to sustain your family. Okay? They didn't uh, you know, have currency like we had currency, at least at this time. But they traded often in various products like wheat or olive oil. And that was money to them. And so it meant being able to take care of your family. It meant being able to sustain your life physically. And so imagine having a bumper crop one year of wheat or of olives or of pomegranates or of cucumbers. They grew that uh, in the Bible times as well as they do today. And to know that you see all of that and to say, well, it didn't just happen as a result of an accident. It came because our faithfulness and fidelity to God. He blessed us. He kept His promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there is a passage that, along with many Deuteronomy passages, that teach the children of Israel about the fact that when they were going to go into the promised land, God said, if you'll serve me and not turn to other gods, then I'll send the early rain and the latter rain in its due season. So that it'll be able to water the grass and your cattle, your livestock, things like that will be able to eat. And you'll have what you need. God made that promise. And so people that were faithful to God, who literally, as he says here, walked in his ways, who, uh, according to verse uh, 4, who feared the Lord, and then they saw that they were able to feed their family, to what then do they need to attribute that success to God? I can only imagine in my own mind because I have on rare occasions tried to grow a garden. Any of y'all ever done that? Some of you farmers maybe. You know about that, right? And uh, it's so exciting when you put in all the work, you plant the seed, right? You cultivate the soil, and then you go out to the garden and, and they're the plants. They finally come up. I can remember after planting the seed, you know, we go out there every day, and especially when the boys were little, and we look, we look, and the plant came up. We were so excited. And then we'd have to wait, you know, five or six weeks or whatever to, for it finally to produce fruit. But we would see the fruit coming, and we'd get excited about it. And then we got to eat the fruit. And it was truly joyous to have a reward after all of the labor and the work and the effort. This had to be the attitude that was present in the life of these people, Israel, who had worked so hard. And now he says, you know what? Uh, you're going to be able, you are eating of the fruit of your hands. Uh, you'll be happy. It'll be well with you. Your wife is going to be like a fruitful vine. Well, notice the beautiful imagery used there, right? There's going to be productivity. There's going to be in terms of what she does and, and also the children that she bears. And uh, happy is the man, as we were reading an earlier uh, uh, a Psalm of Ascent. You know, happy is the man who has his quiver full. It's a joy to, to be able to see children and to have children sitting around your table. They're like little olive plants. 
<laughs> oh boy, you know, if you can think about the how the oil or the olive tree was a staple product of the ancient world and, and is there in many ways today. And all the things that you can do with olive oil, you know, that medicinal purposes and use it for the burning of uh, in your little oil lamp so that you can see and then uh, it can be used for cooking and then the olive oil. Uh, can be used for anointing of kings or special purposes of priests and things. And then the wood of the olive tree can be used to craft certain kinds of objects and tables or whatever. And to say that, you know, look at this. You're faithful to God. This is what God is going to bless you with, the things that you are in need of. Not only personal, not only family, but even societal blessings. In verse number 5, the Lord bless you from Zion, and you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. When they served God, when they were faithful to God, there was a repercussion, or a, uh, not a repercussion, but there were benefits that came from their serving the Lord that uh, helped others in their nation. So there was a lot to give thanks to God for. So again, imagine going up to the temple and thinking about, God, thank you for allowing me to feed my family. Thank you for allowing me to enjoy what you have created in this life. To see things develop as a result of my, my hard labor and what I've done, God, because of the hands you gave me to do it. And then I think about all of us today. A reason to praise God when we come and assemble every first day of the week and we come to the temple of God today, the church. Amen. It's exciting, right. right? How many of us are able to drive to the assembly in a car? <laughs> and an air-conditioned car in Texas, that's really important, right? Okay? Uh, to be able to get there in that vehicle, to have clothes to wear. Um, very few of us, if any of us, in American society have to come to worship hungry unless we chose to do so, right? Wow. Where did all those blessings come from? And that, that's just of a, of a, almost of a, you know, a very uh, mundane fashion to think about that. What about our children? What about having a whole family you know, of olive plants, as it were, in the congregation? And we see children running around, and we see parents, and we see uh, families that have gathered together. It's so joyous. And that is something that excites me to come to worship. Now, there is something here, and a little so-called maybe caveat, if we can put it in that way, that has to be in place if those blessings are to come, and that is this fear, this walking in the way of God. When we come to the assembly, we don't need to think of God as just some sort of, you know, errand boy for us. We call it sometimes in the class that I teach uh, well, a couple of classes that I teach about this in Kings, uh, Coke Machine Christianity. What in the world is that? I had a professor who used to talk about uh, theodicy and the, and the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, and how that we sometimes, when it comes to seeing God, uh, look at Him like a Coke machine. You know, okay, we've got a Coke machine downstairs. You can, or in here, you can actually still pay 50 cents and get a Coke. It's remarkable. And uh, you walk up there and you say, ah, right, here are the selections I want. I put in my 50 cents. I choose that one and out pops the coke and I walk away. Isn't it great? And sometimes we view God that way. God, whatever I want, 
uh, let me put in my prayers, let me do it just this way, and out pops the, you know, the need or the blessing that I have. God says the blessings emanate from Him, but they only come when we fear Him, when we have a reverential respect for Him. And so as we, as these Jews, maybe approach the temple, not to see Him in this sort of errand boy fashion, but rather to approach Him with respect. And that's why these southern steps, this is the second temple period, were designed in the way that they were. At least this is the idea. That there was a long landing, a short landing, a long landing, so that you couldn't just sort of lackadaisically approach the temple of God. They wanted you to stop and think about your approach and that you had to number your steps almost as it were. That you were careful and... uh, so they wanted that approach coming up to whether it was there or in other uh, entrances like at the southwestern corner in the so-called Robinson Arch, this grand staircase, to help the worshiper to come in humility and in awe and in reverence and in respect. And so should we as well. So it's a motivating factor. I want to get there and thank God for all that He's done because He has done so much for us. This Psalm of Ascent then in Psalm 129 is interesting because maybe, and uh, Carly, can you find my battery charger out of there, please? I knew I should have. I thought I was speaking at the 3 o'clock hour and I was going to charge from 2 to 3. And anyway, so about to run out of juice here a little bit. But all right. So 129, our God event avenges. This is interesting, isn't it? Listen to verse 1 now. Have you got your Bibles? Look there. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say. Now, this is interesting because... We think, well, how is this a, a motivating factor for wanting to, you know, to serve God uh, and to come and to worship God? Because it calls to mind what God has done in the past to help us with our enemies and to help us in our difficult situations. These Jews, he says here, at times we've been persecuted. In fact, not just at times, many times. He says, from my youth up, let now Israel say this. Well, if you look back through the Old Testament, you can certainly remind yourself of whether it was Joseph who found himself in a hardship situation by his own brothers being persecuted and later by Potiphar, or whether it was many years uh, near the end of the book of Genesis when they find themselves, or the opening of the book of Exodus as well, in that period in between of being in slavery, or whether it was when David, when he was on the run, or maybe Elijah as he's persecuted by Jezebel, or maybe it is Jeremiah who's thrown into a pit for simply having preached the word of God. God's people on numerous occasions, sometimes because of the fault of their own mistakes, but sometimes just because of their fidelity to God, found themselves being in difficult situations. In fact, he says, this has been going on for a long time. You ever found yourself in a similar situation, struggling with something for a long time. And not only does he describe the length of it, but notice in verse 3, the intensity of it. 
Look at this descriptive language here in verse 3. The plowers plowed up on my back. They lengthened their furrows. Get this, get this image in your mind of someone going out and you know, here's the smooth ground and they're, they're taking their plow and they're breaking it up. And they're breaking it up and you can just see the rows as they're making and the dirt sort of falling over to the side. It's like, it's like they're doing that to my back. All right, they've left little ribbons of strips of flesh on my back. Maybe insinuating or implying rather that um, they've been whipped in some way. And we know some terrible things happened at the hands of Sennacherib, but Lachish, when they were, many of the Jews were impaled and they were stripped of their clothes and marched back to Assyria. And so there were lots of times when God's people indeed felt heavy persecution. But then notice in verse 4, or verse 2, yet they have not prevailed against me. Whatever struggles he was facing, this worshiper and this psalm of ascent in which Israel could sing as well is a reminder that as bad as things get, they don't have to prevail over us. They don't have to ultimately win because the Lord is righteous. Amen. We may struggle in this life, and we will. And we might be persecuted in this life. They all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But God is the ultimate judge, and He will handle it in the end. That's right. I, I think about sometimes people who, who come to worship, and maybe they face at home some really difficult hardships. Maybe there's abuse going on in their home. Maybe uh, there is a, a uh, not only abusive situation, but maybe people in their community have ridiculed them, have tried to keep them from going to worship, and that's happened in, in several places around the world. We get reports back from our extension schools of, of uh, Christians who have met with a lot of persecution. Uh, maybe you've been hated. Maybe you've lost your job as a result of your, uh, you know, your um, virtue and your desire to serve God. And we ask, well, is there any retribution? God, is, is this going to be handled? And the answer is yes. God will handle things in His own time. He is righteous, verse 4. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. It's sort of like learn a history lesson here from what's happened, right? He ultimately brought them out of Egypt. Joseph was ultimately exonerated. Elijah, uh, even though he fled, ultimately uh, had great victories and God kept him busy and working. God knows how to deliver His people Amen. from difficulties. And He knows how to deliver us as well today. So we can come and say, God, I love you and I praise you, even though maybe right now some things are going uh, in a very difficult, hard way. I know that you've promised that you will uh, save in the end. God is righteous and He, vengeance is His, He will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, verse number 19. Abraham said this, is not, will not the judge of all the earth do right in regard to the Sodom and Gomorrah? And that's the way we need to live our life and be thankful to know that. Just as Paul said to persecuted Christians, to you who are troubled, rest with us. 
when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and upon them that obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then in Psalm 130, take a look at there. Oh, this is a beautiful one. A reason to rejoice. God's going to take care of things. He blesses. But ultimately, this is something that just, to me, is at the center of why we come together because of the salvation, the hope, the joy to be found in forgiveness. You know that sin truly is that which separates us from God. God is holy, and man was driven out of the garden and uh, out of that pristine environment, and yet then at that very point, God was seeking to regain or restore fellowship that had been broken with sinful humanity, and so through sacrifices, the altars that were built, and then, and then finally, or ultimately, the tabernacle that would be established and the temple, God created a way for us to reunite with God. Amen. Where heaven could meet earth and where sinful humanity could celebrate and receive forgiveness and know that God loves them and cares about them. Oh, how beautiful the temple images are in Scripture. Well, what lies at the center of that temple? Is it you know, some great complex? No, at the beginning it was just a tabernacle, a tent. We're a place of meeting. And what was going to occur there? Well, God could, according to verse 3, and you know, mark iniquities and you know, keep track of, of the, the wrongs that have been done. But verse 4, notice that vivid contrast. But there is forgiveness with you. Now, there are four words in verses 4 through 8 that I think you ought to circle as a reason to get excited about coming to worship and what we have with God. We have forgiveness, there is loving kindness, there is redemption, and God is spoken of as a redeemer. Four different Hebrew words to convey some powerful and beautiful concepts about what <coughs> took place at the temple. And the sacrifices that were made. And of course, ultimately, what we receive in Jesus Christ. But notice this word in verse 4. The word forgiveness. It's the Hebrew word. And I'm going to say it because of a similar word that we hear sometimes in Israel. Sliha. Well, I remember uh, the first time that... uh, some of us crowded into the, the light rail there in Jerusalem, and I mean, it. certain times of the day, it's so crowded, and you're, you're literally crammed in there like this, holding onto the rail, you know, and, and maybe you've gotten on, but then a, a couple of stops later, somebody in the middle, right, has got to get out, got to get off, and you're in a good spot, you're in a comfortable spot, and then somebody comes along, and this Hebrew says, this, or this Israeli citizen, or says, Slichach. So what does that mean? Is something wrong with your throat? You know, I didn't know. You hear that? No, what does that mean? And it's their way of saying, pardon me. Pardon me. Please. Can you step aside? Well, what happens? You know, that here we are, and I remember kind of like feeling uncomfortable. And I mean, I got in a comfortable spot and then having to kind of move aside and maybe push somebody over here. I get uncomfortable, right, in that situation. We even say that, uh, pardon me. Why are we asking for pardon? Because we're having to inconvenience somebody to do something. Hear the word pardon? 
What are we asking God to do? To inconvenience himself in a way, right? To, to have to get up and to move and to do something because of us. God doesn't do it grudgingly, though. And in the ultimate beautiful pardon of Jesus Christ, of God, Jesus, having to remove himself from his comfortable setting and situation and come to the earth so that we then could find access into the throne of God or to the very place that we're trying to reach. So whether it's that word or the word hesed in verse 7 for loving kindness and and you know that's that's one that's found in Genesis 1919. Two of these are the word goel that's found in verse 8 and the word hesed in verse 7 in Genesis 1919. Both of them in the story of Abraham rescuing Lot from that Mesopotamian coalition of kings that had come down and taken him away captive. And Abraham acts as the near kinsman to rescue them. He shows loving kindness that says, I care about Lot. I want to help him in his destitute situation. And that is the beautiful picture of God. What he does in our destitute situation says, I love you. I'm going to sacrifice my own comfort and I'm going to do what needs to be done and I'm going to go to war for you. Isn't that beautiful? All the images of God acting as the near kinsman for us, the avenger of blood and redeeming us. Oh, how beautiful the pictures are of Scripture of what they enjoyed at the temple and why they were excited to go there and that even in the depths of their hurt they could cry out to the Lord and the Lord in their and in their supplications the Lord would hear them he would and did forgive they as a result in verse 5 had hope and then as you move on down through the text, I'm just going to mention this last one here because we're out of time, but I'm going to jump down to 132. 132, and there is this beautiful picture of God remembering. God remembering His covenant with David. Right? Here are these people who are rooted in history. And a promise made to David, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, that God is going to keep that promise that he made to David. But not only that, but then uses David as an example of a man who wanted to put the Ark of the Covenant back with the tent, the tabernacle, and that temple worship would be restored in the midst of God's people. The ark had been lost. And what you read in verses 2 and following is information about David's desire to have a house for God. And that God then made him a promise that even though he wouldn't get to build it, that he would establish his throne forever. Now what that reminds me of as we end is that God keeps his promises because even through all of those terrible times in the divided kingdom period and all that happened in the captivity period for the sake of his servant David God continued to work through bad situations amen I get excited about coming to worship because even though there are things in my life that happen sometimes that are bad and sometimes we face challenges I know that God is going to work 
if we love Him and we give our lives to Him, He keeps His promises. That's right. We can trust in Him. God remembers and He ultimately will save us. Think about these people on their trek up to Jerusalem and why they must have been excited and why we can be excited when we go to worship God today as well. Amen.